Amen. Please be seated. Jesus, the name above every other name. Okay, elementary aged kiddos, if you will head out these doors to Vine Kids, and if you're in middle schoolish age, head out those back doors. Mr. Greg will meet you out there. I'll have a grand time. These seats were actually sprayed with a plague right up here, so anyone who sits in them will instantly die, and uh, so stay away at all costs from this area right up here, right up front. So, yes, that's right. Oh, it's cold. Yeah, there's a vent. Yeah, it is. So, it was like, it was 140 on Thursday, and then uh, today it's cool and rainy. It's just how it rolls, you know, it's, it's not about our comfort, right? So, uh, anyway, sorry if it's cold up there. I could put a little space heater. Maybe you guys can snuggle. Anyway, how is everyone doing today? Oh, yeah, I'm doing a lot better after singing that last song. Man, what a gorgeous, gorgeous song. I, thank you, Don. That was, our, our worship people here are wonderful. And we are so incredibly blessed to have them. So just, you guys are wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So, <clears throat> know that they don't like that, but it's, uh, it's just true. They're amazing. So we're going to be in the, uh, the book of John again today. We're going to say that we've been saying that now for 63, 4, I don't know, a lot of weeks. And uh, we're in chapter 16 and verse 17. And we are smack dab in the middle of what's called the farewell discourse, which is where Jesus is uh, talking to his and teaching and praying for his disciples in the hours before his his arrest, and then before his crucifixion. It's the longest section of, of John where Jesus is just talking. There are very few interruptions, and it's just, it's, there's so much in here. And we're going to continue with, uh, with part of that discourse. We'll be in, in uh, verse 17 through verse 24 today. And uh, the goal is actually, we're going to start off your 4th of July week with a uh, passage that has nothing to do with patriotism or barbecue. So uh, we're not going to sing any, uh, any patriotic songs or st- stomp out of here as um, soldiers of the cross or whatever. I love all that passage, but that's not what is in John today. So we will, uh, that's about all that you're going to get. If you want, the Scott family, um, our tradition is that I read the preamble to the, uh, to the uh, Declaration of Independence to our children every year. So if you want to come over. It's a grand old time. They love it. So I once tried reading the entire Declaration of Independence to them, but I lost them. They were like six and four and two, and they did not grasp the beauty of that document. But not here. Here we're going to be in John. So if you will, uh, will join me, let's pray, and then let's jump into the text. So, dear Jesus, we, we come to you. Wow, what a marvelous God you are. And we, we come to you to worship you, and we worship you as our Savior. You are our God. You are our King. You are coming again. You died on the cross and you rose from the dead to pay for our sins and draw us back to you. And I just, Lord, we come to you to thank you for that. This is not some show we put on every week. We come here because we must worship you. And it is what we were created to do. Thank you that you receive our worship and fill us with who you are. You give us your Holy Spirit. You give us the word to teach us. You give us one another to correct us. Just grateful for this body. Thank you for this passage in John. Lord, we're going to talk about grief today. We're going to talk about joy today. And I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would convict us 
and encourage us. I pray that you would change who we are today. Thank you for this encounter with your word, Lord Jesus. We come to you expecting you to teach us and to change us and to do something in us. We come to you expectantly because we need it. We want it. Please grow us. Lord, we love you. May all that is said and done today bring glory to your name. In that name we pray. Amen. All right, so we will be in verse 17. Treb had talked uh, last week. He is, he is currently on, a, on a, a wonderful family trip with his extended family in Canada, where it's like 50 degrees right now. So they are loving it, and he's having hopefully resting. It's what he needs, but he may not be doing that. He'll be back uh, next week. But Jesus was uh, talking to his disciples in the previous passage about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, this counselor who would come and would... would do this work would convict the world of, of guilt regarding the sin and righteousness and judgment and the work that the spirit would do it's this beautiful trinitarian passage and we're going to come into verse 17 because in verse 16 jesus says in a little while you'll see me no more and then a little while you will see me so we roll into 17 and some of his disciples said to one another well what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me and because i and going to the Father. And they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. And Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything, and I tell you the truth, ask my father, uh, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. So you have the disciples, right, who are just, right now there's just 11 of them because uh, Judas has, has, has fled to go betray Jesus. And you have these 11 guys, and they will end up, through the power of the Holy Spirit, literally transforming the world. Okay, they're going to carry the message of the gospel. We'll see that in the book of Acts. And they are confused. They say, what does he mean in a little while? And then they say, and then what do they mean when he says, I, I'm coming, I'm going to the Father? And verse 18 says, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. I mean, have you ever read the Bible and felt that way? You just read it and you go, I do not understand what Jesus is saying. I do not understand what that text means. I just, I don't get it. We're, the men are going through uh, Zechariah right now in uh, Monday evening Bible study. We spent a whole lot of time thinking really hard and asking Jesus to show us what a passage means, and then we, we don't necessarily always get it. And so there are parts of the Bible that are very hard to understand, and Jesus in particular said many things that were hard to understand, but they don't know what's going on. Jesus has told them he's going to die and come back. He's told them that, but they're, they're not getting it. 
And so, and notice it says some of his disciples, it doesn't say which ones, said to one another. They're not asking Jesus. They've already asked him some other questions in this passage, and he explains other things to them. And asking Jesus questions is always a beautiful and dangerous thing because he's always going to answer according to your need, not to answer your question. Which is, of course, what he does here in, in verse 19. Notice this as Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them. See, he, he notices what they're doing. He always sees. And he asked them a rhetorical question. Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And you expect Jesus to say what? Well, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of all mankind. Once for all, I will be the atoning sacrifice for all the sins of all of history, of all of people, all at once. Then I will lay in a tomb for three days, and I will raise from the dead, and I'll come back and see you. That's what I mean. But he doesn't say that. He answers their question with this. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. So the word there for weep means uh, really it's a loud expression of grief, like wailing. And uh, the word for mourn is, is another, it's an external manifestation of grief. Uh, it could be used for a lament song or even a group of people who were hired to be mourners alongside a funeral. They would hire a, a, a people to play music or to play like a funeral dirge, which was a, a, a song that, that was a lament for a person who had died. And then he says you will grieve. That word for, for grieve means pain of body or mind. And it's the same word in, in verse 21 where he says a woman giving birth to a child has pain or grief. The same word, it means pain of body and mind. He says, I'll tell you the truth, you will wail loud expressions of grief. You will have external manifestations of your pain. That's what he's telling these guys. These are like, half of these guys are blue-collar guys. They're fishermen. They're rough. And he's telling them, you're going to weep. Why? Because Jesus is going away. They're going to suffer loss. And then he gives an example, an illustration, which was pretty common. I mean, people have babies all the time, especially in this church. We have lots of babies. So this should work well here. It says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain. Why? Because her time has come. You have a baby growing in the womb. It's time for the baby to come out. That's going to hurt. Now, I've never experienced this. Jesus never experienced labor. None of these guys ever experienced labor. Uh, so this is, you ladies in the room who have experienced it will have a lot more insight than I do. But it says, but when her baby is born, she forgets. Other verses say she, she no longer remembers, which is probably a better way of thinking. And not that you forget the pain, but you're no longer focused on it. You're no longer constantly thinking about the pain. And then it says she forgets the anguish. So that word for anguish is, is uh, the root word for that was the word used to crush grapes in a wine press. To be pressed between two things. So it's this crushing pain. It's the same word that John, who also wrote Revelation, will use in chapter 7 when he talks about the great tribulation that will come upon the world. She no longer remembers this crushing, great tribulation that she endured. Why? Because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Then in verse 22, so it will be with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. So, see, Jesus is saying, look, it's, it's like a woman in labor. 
there is going to be a time of pain, but then there will be a time of joy. But there will be pain, and there will be joy. You can be assured of both of those things. And he says, I will see you again. He's, the context, of course, is that Jesus is talking about his, his death and his resurrection. But it, like all these things that we're studying in the Bible, it opens up this whole other arena of, of ideas about grief and joy that we rarely ever talk about. And then 23 says, in that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name until now you haven't asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So in the context of this, he's saying, listen, when I, when I die and raise from the dead, when I come back, you won't need to ask me anything because you're going to ask my Father instead. And that is what we do. We ask the Father in the name of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That is how we pray. And that is how our joy is made complete. Prayer is a part of that process. But I also think, though, the phrase in that day is very interesting because that kind of harkens to uh, the, the future even yet to us now. In that day when, when our salvation is finally complete, when we have been raised, resurrected, and all is new, and we are in resurrected bodies in a new heaven and a new earth, that the questions that we have now, that we have for Jesus, maybe they won't matter anymore. I may be reading into that a little bit, so don't hang your head on that. But he says, in that day you will no longer ask me anything. And I kind of think that a lot of us have questions about Jesus or for Jesus, and then we have questions kind of at Jesus, right? Like there's questions like, uh, explain the dinosaurs to me, or uh, kind of silly questions. You know, why did the Red Sox lose the World Series? Or, but, you know, well, when they ask big questions about Jesus, why did this person die? I don't know that when we're sitting there in front of Jesus that those questions will matter anymore. We may still have them, but I'm not sure that they're going to be all that important. We'll be able to ask them. I know that for sure, but I don't know that it will matter anymore. You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you think, oh, I've got to ask them this question, and then you learn something new and you realize, mm, never mind, it's not important. In verse 24, it says, until now, though, you've not asked for anything in my name. But ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. We have this relationship with a, a triune God, a father and a son and a spirit. The son came down. The father sent the son to die for us. The son dies and raises from the grave and, and ascends and then he sends the Holy Spirit. He just finished telling them, if I don't go away, I can't send the spirit. And so the spirit is going to come and then we'll see this guy like Peter who denies Jesus will see him preach one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached and thousands of people will come to Jesus. And when we, as we go through this obedience of following Jesus, we will need things, we'll need support, we'll need objects, we'll need all kinds of things that we can ask and we will receive what we need to do the things that Jesus wants us to do. So this leaves us with uh, a couple options here. You can just hit this verse and you just look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which is a beautiful thing that, that happened and is real. You can look at, you can focus on joy. You can look at, you could preach about childbirth, I guess, from this. You could talk about what it means to pray and ask for things in the Father's name. But what uh, I think we're going to do today is, is we're going to focus on grief and joy. Because it's something that we don't uh, do well. It's something that we like to shy away from. And grief and sadness and pain are far better denied than they are embraced in our thinking. It's not true, of course. But I want to kind of give some observations about grief. 
and about the things that people go through while we're grieving. Because look at what Jesus says. He says, in answer to their question, fine, I'll answer your question. You will weep. I tell you the truth, verily, verily. He's saying, listen, this is true, so listen. You will weep and wail and mourn while the world rejoices. You will have pain, but your pain will be turned to joy like a woman going through childbirth. So I wanted to take a look at a few things that grief is not. I want to maybe look at some of the ways that we can love people well who are in grief. And then what do we do in the process of grieving? So grief is really hard to define. Um, it's hard to experience. It's hard to quantify. I just recently got a, a, the best definition that I have is a working definition, I guess. But that grief is the complex of emotions that follows the loss of anything or anyone. Grief is the complex of emotions that follows the loss of anything or anyone. So the complex, right? Grief is not this linear thing. It is, it is both complex and a complex. It is a large bunch of emotions. It is something that we feel. It is something that we experience that follows loss. Grief is a response to loss, and we feel pain because we have suffered loss. And then it says the loss of anything or anyone. We grieve something that is as dumb as the fact that our Netflix, favorite Netflix show ended, right? You're like, oh, oh, I grieve, and you go through a little process, and you're done. And then, that's like micro grief, right? And then we have like giant meta grief, which is you lose someone you love, you lose a person. But grief happens either way. And it is a reality. As, as real as I'm standing on the stage, as real as you are hearing my voice, and it is coming into your ears, grief is real. And it is something that we as human beings suffer. All human beings suffer loss because we are currently in a time where Jesus has risen and ascended into heaven. He has sent the Holy Spirit. And now we are in this other time we talk about around Christmas, right? The second advent. We are waiting the second coming of Jesus when he will make all things right again. But in that until time, we now have this weird tension we live in where I am a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit who, who created things, who, who is God himself. But yet I live in a fallen world and my body is fallen. I can still be tempted. It's this very difficult paradox that we live in and we don't deal with it well. But Jesus speaks directly into their reality when he says, I promise you, you're going to weep. You're going to mourn, but your grief will turn to joy. So a few um, observations on grief. And I'm going to be quoting from some other people because a lot of wonderful books have been written on grief. Um, all of them by people who have grieved. And if you're looking for a list of, of books, I can, I can give you some suggestions later. But I'll talk about two of them today. One is that grief cannot be escaped. It is a reality that we experience. Grief is a, is a complex of emotions that we experience caused by the loss of something or anything or anyone. Any loss will cause grief. And we can either deny the grief and say, no, 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 I'm not really grieving. Or we can actually press into it and be healed. There is a man named, uh, named Larry Stitter. And he, uh, in 1991, he was uh, driving with his family and a car crossed over the highway and hit him head on. Instantly killed his wife, <clears throat> killed his little girl, killed his mother, and left him as the father of his remaining children. Incomprehensible loss. 
incomprehensible pain. There is no way to get away from that. He wrote a book called uh, A A Grace Disguised. And in it he says this about pain. He says, the pain of loss is unrelenting. It stalks and chases until it catches us. It is as persistent as wind on the prairies, as constant as cold in the Antarctic, as erosive as a spring flood. It will not be denied, and there is no escape from it. In the end, denial, bargaining, binges, and anger are mere attempts to deflect what will eventually conquer us all. Pain will have its day because loss is undeniably, devastatingly real. Only a man who has been enveloped in the most overwhelming kind of pain can say a thing like that. Pain of loss is unrelenting. You cannot escape it. In the end, denial, bargaining, binges, and anger are mere attempts to deflect what will eventually conquer us all. Pain will have its day because loss is undeniably, devastatingly real. Why ruin your day, right? Why am I talking about this? I mean, if you were happy coming in here, man, you're down now. It's like, oh my gosh, why didn't I sleep in bed? It was so rainy and peaceful, I could be watching Netflix. Because what does Jesus say? He doesn't explain things to them, does he? He speaks into their need. He says, I tell you the truth, you will weep. You will mourn. Why? Because they are going to lose something that is dear to them. They are going to lose Jesus. He's going to die. They're going to watch him. Those that were brave enough to stick around would watch him die. Those that weren't would run away. Grief cannot be escaped. It cannot be escaped. Jesus is not telling them not to grieve. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, suck it up, rub some dirt on it, you'll be fine. He says, you're going to hurt, you're going to weep, but that pain will be turned to joy. It cannot be escaped. So there's no sense in denying it or numbing it with a drug or running away from it. You can run. There are people, after 10 years on the mission field, many missionaries go to the mission field trying to escape grief. It follows you. It follows you. Just like he says, it stalks and chases until it catches us. There is no running from it. If you have experienced loss and you have not confronted your pain, it is stalking you now and it's right at the door and there is no escape from it. Do you understand me? Because we serve a Jesus who is real, who speaks into our reality. And the Bible wants us so desperately, God wants us so desperately to be rightly related to reality. Not the false world that we create around us to make us feel like we're happy. He wants to confront our pain with himself, and he wants to turn it into joy. But we must first realize that grief cannot be escaped. Second, grief is not the enemy. Notice, Jesus doesn't say here, don't grieve. I'll say that again. He doesn't tell them not to grieve. And Jesus did not come to die on the cross and take grief away from us. He came to die on the cross because sin and death are the enemies. Grief is not. 
Grief is actually a gift that God has given us to process loss until he comes again. We must understand that. Grief is a gift that God gives us to process the loss we experience living on planet earth. Grief is not the enemy. Sin and death are the enemy. But not grief. Jesus grieved when Lazarus died. Remember not how many months ago? Jesus comes up and he sees Mary and Martha broken and weeping and he wept with them. Even though five minutes later he was going to raise Lazarus from the grave. Yet he grieved with them because he felt the loss that they felt. Grief is not the enemy. It is instead a gift from God that he has given us to process the losses that we suffer. And grief is not sin. Grief is not sin. It is a gift. If grief were sin, why would Jesus walk through this like this? Is joy a sin? No, neither is grieving. It is something that God gives us. And when we, when we look at people who say, you know what, you're, you're kind of, you're done grieving, you grieve long enough. How, how dare we do that? So grief cannot be escaped. It is not the enemy and it is not sin. But what do we do with uh, loving, grieving people well? How do we do that? What does that look like? We say here at the Vine that we want to love God, love people, and follow Jesus. Well, loving people eventually will involve loving somebody in their grief because all of us suffer loss. If you have not suffered loss in the past and you're not currently suffering loss now, you're gonna. Everybody suffers loss. So being prepared for grief is wise because it's either come in the past, we're doing it now, or facing it in the future. So how do we love grieving people well? One is to give them time and space to breathe and to grieve. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a beautiful and very sad book about grief called A Grief Observed After the Death of His Wife. <clears throat> but giving people space and time, he says this, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. Gosh, isn't that amazing? At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed, like I hit my head. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. He just doesn't want to be alone. He doesn't want to be by himself. Do you remember what Job's friends did? The only thing they did right in the whole book, for the most part, is in the beginning, in sort of the crater of his loss, it's in Job chapter 2, it says, When Job's three friends... Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. 
Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. That's called the ministry of presence, and it is just going and being with hurting people. And you try not to say anything stupid. There is this idea of grieving with the grieving. There is this idea of mourning with those who mourn. That when someone is in the shock of loss, you don't run into fixed things. Because you can't. Grief has a, a... I think there's a lot of models of stages of grief, but the one that is most helpful for me is one that has three stages. A crisis stage, which is the shock right after something happens. And it is where there's a a very graciously given numbing effect on us that enables us to absorb that loss, but still do some things and not just die. It's crisis. It's the shock part. I don't know how long that part lasts. It depends on the person. That wears off, and then the real pain begins. That is the crucible. There is a crisis, there is a crucible, and then there is construction. Crisis is the shock, the crucible is the, the deep grinding pain of loss, and the construction is rebuilding our life without that person in it, or without that thing that we lost. Maybe you lost your identity because you got fired. Maybe you lost a brother or a sister. Maybe you lost a marriage, or a husband, or a wife, or a child. There must be a process where we then rebuild our lives without that person. That is the construction phase, and there are no demarcations or time limits on any of those things. And they came to Job in the the very crisis of his pain, and they sat there for seven days, and they didn't say a word. Have you ever been outside on on a really hot, muggy, still day? There's no breeze, and it's just brutal. You're sitting there, and all you can do is sit and sweat. Breathing becomes a conscious act. You're like, breathe in breathe out. It's like you're in a sauna and your body just sweats. There's no escape. Moving just makes it worse. You just sit. You're like, don't touch me. Nobody get near me. I just want to, just let me sit here. Being around grieving people is very much like that because we have to learn to become comfortable with the screaming silence of their pain. We have to sit there at this, this yawning open mouth of pain that's screaming at us But there is nothing that you can say back that will do any good whatsoever. So you sit there and you wait with somebody. Maybe you get them a drink of water. Maybe you get them a bite to eat. But you don't try to fix it. You don't go up and throw Bible verses on them for crying out loud. That's not the time. You don't run up and say, God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even though that is true, it is not the time. The time for that is in the construction phase when they are learning to rebuild their life. Then they see God is still good, but in the crisis phase, all they feel is pain. And our job as our brothers and sisters is just to hurt with them. That's it. What do you do if you're grieving? Um, Well, what does Jesus tell them to do? He says in verse 22, so with you, now is your time of grief. We uh, Americans don't really like to think that there's actually an, kind of an ordained time for things. But uh, older, wiser people like Solomon thought that there were. 
and he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes that deals with many of those things. Very, very famous in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, not just because the birds wrote a song about it, but because it's true. He says, uh, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Do you believe that? There is actually a time for things. Listen to this. There is a time to be born and a time to die. This is facing, Ecclesiastes faces reality right in the face. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give up for lost a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, like in the crisis of grief, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. How true is that? The Holy Spirit inspired a man to write that because it's true. There is a time for grief, and if we deny it, we can't get the healing that we need in the process so what do we do let's say we accept okay grief is real which is a huge step and you say i'm going to cease numbing myself and i'm going to press into the pain you must press into jesus in verse 22 he says so with you now is the time of your grief but i will see you again and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. What is it that comes between their grief and their joy? It's Jesus. He is the bridge between grief and joy. That is why Paul tells people, do not grieve as those who have no hope. Without Christ, grieving is you're just trying to make it through to the next day until you finally die and don't exist anymore. They can make up stuff all that they want, but an atheist cannot live with hope like that. They cannot do it because the best that we can do is to numb it or to get busy doing something else, but we can't actually be healed and we cannot experience joy except from, from the joy giver, and that is Christ alone. He says, I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy because Jesus won't let them. If you have never known Jesus as your Savior, you will experience grief and you will do it without him. Do not do that. Come to him and be saved and he will teach you how to have joy after grief. The same man that wrote that first quote I gave also wrote this. He said the the quickest way for anyone to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west chasing after the setting sun. What a picture. The quickest way for anyone to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west chasing east, uh, chasing after the setting sun, chasing after the things that were, but to head east, plunging into the darkness until one comes to the sunrise. That is the fastest way, he says. You must plunge through the darkness. Victor Hugo wrote a book called Les Miserables, which means the Miserables, right? It's a beautiful book. It's devastating. It's sad. It's called the, the Miserables. 
but it is such a picture of grace because that is where grace works. It works in miserable situations. And he says in that book that the pupil dilates in darkness and in the end finds light. So that our eye was designed, when it gets dark, to open up to receive more light. And he says, just as the soul dilates in misfortune and in the end finds God. What words! The pupil dilates in darkness and in the end finds light just as the soul dilates in misfortune and in the end finds God. God created our souls to expand in our suffering and receive more of Him. But if I sit back and say, I'm not hurting, I'm not really sad, I'm really okay, then I cannot receive that which He wants to give me. Do you understand that? We must be people who receive what Jesus gives us. But we must enter the pain that is real to do it. And we must teach a world how to grieve well. The world doesn't know how to grieve. They don't get it. How can they? The best that they can do is to build processes around themselves. The best that they can do is to medicate it. But they cannot experience joy that no one can take away unless they have Jesus. See, Jesus is not blind to our pain. Do you see in verse 19, Jesus saw, and then he said, he sees your pain. He sees it. Not only does he see it, but remember his name from the Christmas stories? His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And he's telling him, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. Until then, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. That is God with us us. He not only sees our pain, but he experiences our pain with us. Isn't that incredible? No other religion has that. A God who is willing to experience the pain of his creation with them. He is not blind to our pain, and he is the bridge between our grief and our joy. Do you see that he says, you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy? Brothers and sisters, our joy is as real as our grief. Joy is not some sort of idea that God just throws around in the book. He actually wants us to experience it. But before we can experience joy, we must embrace the pain of grief. See, the disciples weren't getting the crucifixion. They weren't getting the resurrection because they could not comprehend the resurrection until they had suffered the pain of the crucifixion. You see that? Jesus would have it no other way. They were going to watch him die. They were going to suffer the grief of his being in the tomb, and then they were going to have the glorious joy of seeing Jesus again. The reason that is important is because what we believe and who we believe in must make a difference. I'm not up here spouting pop psychology at you saying, oh, if you do this and join a group, and all those things are useful in the process. Anything that helps you grieve through that process that is not contrary to the Bible is great. But Jesus must be the one who makes the difference. If I form the bridge between my grief and my joy, it will fall. If Jesus is that bridge, then that is the joy. I will arrive at a joy that no one can take away from me, that can never be stolen, that pain and loss cannot come back and steal again. He is real, and his words to us are real. 
And we must believe that he makes a difference in actual life, in actual grief, in actual pain. It's not a fun sermon to preach. It's not a fun reality to deal with. I, I, I wish people didn't die. Do you know that? I, I don't look at me, I don't look and say, well, I'm so glad we suffer pain. What, what crazy person would ever think that? But yet we live in a world that actually and in reality suffers the deepest losses imaginable. And we believe in a God who comforts the suffering with an unimaginable comfort and an unquantifiable peace and an undeniable joy. We must take our pain and bring it all to Jesus. It's wonderful today because we we get to celebrate a beautiful picture of this, and that is the picture of communion. And that we have this table over here, and it represents Jesus talking to these disciples. And they were, they didn't know what was going on. And Jesus was getting ready to do the very thing that we're going to do, we're going to celebrate today. That is the Lord's Supper. That on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and giving thanks to the Lord, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took the wine and he poured it and he said, this cup is the new covenant poured out for you in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. That every time you drink this cup and eat this bread, you do this in remembrance of me. What a beautiful picture of grief. Jesus broke for us. He bled for us. Not just to accomplish a task, but these very The picture of this gives us the very things that we need to process through the losses that we suffer and the grief that we have. So I invite you as we come and take this, don't just grab the bread and dip it. I I want you to imagine that the bread and the cup and the juice are the pain. Take them in. The Lord Jesus is with us. Use this thing that he gives us to do. Use it as a process of healing. There's no hurry You don't have to run up here and run back. Take time. Get your heart ready. This table is not a denominational table. This is a believer's table. For everyone who has believed on the name of Jesus, you are welcome to come to this table and partake. Come. Take. Remember. Until he comes again. Would our servers please come forward?